Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today on our weekly roundtable, the latest on the Derek Chauvin trial, the police officer being tried for the murder of George Floyd, our collective PTSD, and thoughts on the testimony thus far. Also, Biden's infrastructure plan and how it attempts to address racial inequality and the climate crisis. How is organized labor responding to his plan? And the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was roundly criticized for taking a stand against the Vietnam War and for focusing on economic issues as he called for the Poor People's Campaign. As we approach the anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King on April 4th, we take a look at Biden's foreign policy versus his domestic policy, including the situation of children at the border. We live, our panelists are Jackie Goldberg, Laura Carlson, and Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. A Minneapolis police sergeant who was on duty the night George Floyd died has testified he believes the officers who restrained Floyd could have ended it after he stopped resisting. David Plugger was called to the stand by prosecutors. Do you have an opinion as to when the restraint of Mr. Floyd should have ended in this encounter? Yes. What is it? When Mr. Floyd was no longer offering up any resistance to the officers, they could have ended their restraint. The sergeant noted officers are trained to roll people on their side to help with their breathing after they've been restrained in the prone position. The murder and manslaughter trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin resumes this morning for a half day. A suspect fatally shot by Chicago police in what the department called an armed confrontation has been identified as a 13-year-old. The Cook County Medical Examiner's Office at Adam Toledo of Chicago died of a gunshot wound to his chest. His mother says her son was full of life and she wants to know what happened to him. A sheriff in Texas has fired seven officers involved in the in-custody death of a black jail prisoner whose family members say may have been suffering a mental health crisis. The county sheriff said in a statement that detention officers violated sheriff's office policies and procedures leading up to the death of 26-year-old Marvin Scott III. An eighth officer under investigation has resigned. Authorities have said Scott was arrested at an outlet mall on a marijuana possession charge in mid-March. Officials at the jail reportedly used pepper spray and a spit mask on Scott after he began exhibiting what the sheriff called strange behavior. Family members say Scott had schizophrenia. Civil rights lawyer Lee Merritt, who is representing Scott's family, has said he thinks Scott was jailed for marijuana possession because he was black and viewed as a criminal rather than as someone in crisis. Southern California police say the gunman who killed four people, including a nine-year-old boy and wounded a fifth at an office complex, knew all the victims, either through business or personal relations. 
Orange County District Attorney Todd Spitzer said he will consider seeking the death penalty for the suspect. And it appears that a little boy died in his mother's arms as she was trying to save him during this horrific massacre. Our hearts today go out to the victims, and I'm here to tell you that we're going to do everything in our power in the Orange County District Attorney's Office to get justice for these families. Police say the suspect, Aminadab Gonzalez, chained and locked the front and back gate entrances to the business complex to prevent officers from responding as he went on a shooting rampage. The motive remains unknown. U.S. employers added more than 900,000 jobs last month in a sign that a sustained recovery from the pandemic recession is taking hold. As vaccinations accelerate, stimulus checks flow through the economy and businesses increasingly reopen. The March increase was the most since August. It was nearly double February's gain. The official unemployment rate declined from 6.2 to 6 percent, although that doesn't count people who are discouraged and quit looking for a job. The $1,400 checks received by the vast majority of U.S. adults as part of the Democrats' coronavirus relief plan led to sharply increased consumer spending. That's according to Bank of America's tracking of its debit and credit cards. B of A says spending jumped 23 percent in the third week of March compared with pre-pandemic levels. The sobering news is the U.S. remains in a major jobs deficit. Nine and a half million fewer jobs exist in the U.S. economy than just before the virus struck. An additional two million or so jobs would have been added in the past year under normal circumstances. That means the U.S. economy still needs roughly 11 and a half million more jobs to regain something close to full health. The official unemployment rates continue to show racial disparities. 3.9% of whites were listed as unemployed compared to 6.8% of African Americans and 6% of Hispanics or Latinos. For Asians, the number was 4.1% unemployment. The New York Times reports a Justice Department investigation into Florida Republican Matt Gates and an indicted Florida politician focuses on their involvement with multiple women who were recruited online for sex and received cash payments. Gates, who is 38, is facing accusations of sexual exploitation of a 17-year-old girl who is below the age of consent. The federal investigation centers on charges Gates paid the 17-year-old to travel with him. Gates has denied the allegations. Republican House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said this week the accusations were serious, and if proved, Gates would be removed from the committees on which he serves. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. It is our weekly roundtable. And uh, what I'd like to do is to welcome our panelists. I'd like to welcome Laura Carlson, director of the America's Program, who works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. She is based in Mexico City, where she's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura Carlson is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura Carlson, welcome. 
Thank you, Margaret. I'm happy to be on the show. And Jackie Goldberg, governing board member for the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She is a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council, and before being elected to the council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. And Dr. Gerald Horn, Moore's Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He's also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Dr. Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, we're going to start off our discussion with focusing on the trial of Derek Chauvin, the white Minneapolis police officer who murdered 46-year-old George Floyd in May of 2020. Now, on Thursday, April 1st, retired Minneapolis Police Department Sergeant David Plioger testified that the force being used by officers should have stopped earlier. During the court session, he said, when Mr. Floyd was no longer offering up any resistance to the officers, they could have ended the restraint. The trial continued with testimony from paramedics who responded to the murder scene. Let's go to a few clips uh, giving us um, the context. We'll hear first the off-duty firefighter who wanted to give George Floyd medical attention but was stopped uh, by Chauvin. And uh, also we'll hear from the paramedic who treated George Floyd and from the police supervisor who testified about the use of force on Mr. Floyd. When you first approached, you said you identified yourself as a firefighter. Correct. To whom did you identify yourself? To Officer Tao, controlling the scene. I, I spoke loudly enough that I, I would think that the, the other three officers would have been able to hear me throughout the event. And we know you weren't, well, let me ask you this way. How did Officer Tao respond? Um, he said something along the lines of, if you really are a Minneapolis um, firefighter, you would know better than to get involved. The officers didn't let me in to the scene. I also offered, in my memory, I offered to walk, kind of walk them through it or, or told them, if he doesn't have a pulse, you need to start compressions, and that wasn't done either. And so when it, well, is this, are these things that you wanted to do? It would have, it's what I would have done for anybody. And when you couldn't do that, how did that make you feel? Totally distressed. Were you frustrated? Yes. Ms. Hansen, you know, I, as I told you, we can take our time, so feel free to just take a minute. And need a drink of water? Go ahead. Okay. Did the code level of that call change at some point? 
He did about a minute and a half after we got it, I believe. And um, what was the change? It, uh, it, we got a note saying code three, so uh, upgraded to lights and sirens, uh, emergent response to the scene. And what did you see when you got out of the, of the ambulance in terms of um, the patient's condition at that point? I was standing a, a little ways away, so I couldn't get a, you know, my partner would have had a more accurate description of his condition at that point, but uh, from what I could see where I was at, I didn't, I didn't see any breathing or movement or anything like that. Did he appear to be unresponsive to you at that point in time? From what I could tell, just standing from a distance, yes. There was also a, a crowd of people that were appeared very upset on the sidewalk and I, there was some yelling and stuff and we in my mind at least uh, we also want to get away from that because running a cardiac arrest it takes a lot of mental power and focus and um, you know it, it can be taxing in our ability so we want to do that in the optimum environment we can and since the ambulance is right there we want to be in that controlled space to start resuscitation. At that moment, I am working on securing the iGel airway device. In my right hand there, that blue thing is a, a tube holder, we call it, to put in the patient's mouth to keep the airway device in place. Even though there was, a, when he first arrived, he was in asystole, at some point later there was PEA at any point, did he regenerate a pulse or um, come to? Was he revived? No. Do you recall what the defendant told you? He said he knelt on Floyd or knelt on his neck, something of that nature. I don't recall his exact words. And is that the first time you became aware that uh, force had been applied to Mr. Floyd's neck? Yes. Did the defendant tell you how long he had applied pressure to or restrained Mr. Floyd uh, and applied pressure to his neck? No. At some point, did you receive yet another update on Mr. Floyd's medical condition? I did. Uh, someone approached me and let me know that he passed away. You were initially on scene. You had no information that Mr. Floyd was deceased, right? Correct. Do you deal with the medical attention and ignore the threat, or do you deal with the threat and then deal with the medical attention? I guess you'd have to deal with both kind of simultaneously. Yeah, and that last voice, uh, retired Minneapolis <coughs> Police uh, Department uh, sergeant. And also on Thursday, uh, George Floyd's former girlfriend, uh, Courtney Ross, testified that she has been in a relationship with him since August 2017 and dated him until his death. She gave key personal details about George Floyd, describing him as a mama's boy, saying he was devastated and broken when his mother passed away. Courtney also said Floyd tested positive for COVID-19 in late March and that he had been in quarantine. She did add, however, that they both struggled to deal with addiction to opiates. Now, um, 
that was uh, news that the prosecution thought it was important to bring out uh, because they knew that the defense was going to use the argument that George Floyd died in some drug-related um, incident uh, rather than at the hands of Derek Chauvin. So, Laura Carlson, um, your reaction to what you have heard of the trial thus far, I mean, it seems pretty damning, but uh, who knows what the reaction, um, you know, what the verdict will be at the end of the day. But your thoughts on uh, what has happened thus far, Laura? Margaret, the, one of the first clips that you played uh, when the firefighter says, it's what I would have done for anybody is absolutely heartbreaking, and not just for her who had to be on the scene and witness uh, the denial of the officers to allow her to try to save a human life, but for anybody, and I think it goes to the core of what we're seeing here, um, Derek Chauvin pled not guilty. And so there was an interesting op-ed in the L.A. Times by L.C. Granderson in which he said, America is not on trial as the defendant to prove that we are better than this. It's on trial as the prosecutor once again trying to prove that black lives do not matter. And that's the essence of this not guilty plea and of what we're seeing. We already know that Chauvin did something wrong. He killed a man. He actually stood there, and we see this from on-site testimony of professionals. He stood there kneeling on a man who was dead and didn't bother to try to see, you know, what was going on with him to try to save a human life. That is, that is as damning as you can get. In the girlfriend's testimony, I think it's interesting, and, it, it, you know, you can understand it as part of the strategy. Of, of the lawyers, but the very idea that it's necessary to humanize Floyd is uh, rather shocking in itself. Um, you know, we should know from the outset that he's a human being, that he has a mother, that he has a wife, that he had aspirations. Um, and, the, and then finally, the point that uh, it was necessary to, to bring into the story fight with the addiction of drugs to prove that he was accustomed to, to drugs in order to offset a, a predicted um, defense that registers the levels of fentanyl, of fentanyl in his body um, is, also, is also very telling because it comes back to the U.S. war on drugs and the way that the demonization of, of uh, users of illicit substances and the dehumanization of them has become such a big part of this very racialized, very racist war on drugs and has become an excuse, not just in this case, but in many cases, for, uh, for actually, you know, killing people and for violating all kinds of human rights as well as keeping Dion a whole a whole part of the population and justifying mass incarceration. So what could come out of this is, is that either way, it's likely, it's likely to be a historic case. It already is an historic case. But what I'm afraid of is that it will be treated as, you know, an isolated case, that there could be an exemplary sentence but that it will be placed in the context of rogue 
police officers who did the wrong thing and how from now on they're going to do the right thing. And, and that much of the sentencing would, would be because the eyes of the world are watching and because there's a fear of protests afterwards. But that's not what's on trial here. That's not what needs to be done. The structural causes of what happens uh, need to be addressed. At the beginning of the program, you played a number of, of news items just in the last week that have to do with how this is an ongoing problem. And until we address the roots of that ongoing problem, um, we, we won't really make progress with this case or any other individual case. Yes, and, and Jackie Goldberg, I mean, this is a trial watched around the world. We began to discuss it last week on our weekly roundtable. Since then, uh, other witnesses have been called, but we have to remember that the protests um, against what happened to George Floyd uh, happened in over 2,000 cities and towns in over 60 countries. Um, the, there's an estimate that around 26 million people participated in the uh, demonstrations. And you have some response of uh, cities that are working on what is defined as defunding the police, which is often misunderstood. And also in Congress, there's H.R. 7120 or the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act was introduced by Congresswoman Karen Bass. But just your response, uh, Jackie Goldberg, with how things have been going so far, what jumps out at you in terms of what uh, you have heard? Well, the things that jump out at me are, first of all, uh, Chauvin is sitting in a suit and uh, looking uh, like a decent human being at the trial. If he were a black on trial for murder, he would be in an orange jumpsuit and chained to the bench. And that mm. immediately struck me, because we've seen too many of those scenes, particularly if you've been watching anything about the Chicago 7. But that was in the 60s. It's still going on in the 21st, uh, 2021. So I think that's the first thing that struck me. The second thing that struck me was the need of the prosecution to make uh, him a person, that you couldn't assume that, he was a, that, 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 that George Floyd was a human being without having to bring in witnesses to, quote, humanize him for the jury. Is, doesn't that tell you everything we need to know? Doesn't that really tell you where we are in this country on race? That you have to humanize the victim in order to get someone to think about convicting the people that killed him. That just, that's the hardest part for me to take, is, is that they had to humanize George Floyd for the jury. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that keeps you awake at night, thinking we've made no progress at all. Though I know we have. I know we have. It's just that that's, those are the things that have bothered me the most about this. I think that we just, uh, I agree entirely with Laura. Even if there's a conviction, it doesn't mean the beginning of the end of cops getting away. You know, the reality is, unless people who do, who have guns are held accountable, and have badges, unless they are held accountable, unless the laws like the one in California, which is the police officer's bill of rights, means you can't even find out if the officer has had a record of, of, of excessive violence in his past. You can't find out anything about the officer that has killed somebody who was unarmed in this state. And this is, quote, a big blue progressive state. Well, ha, ha, ha. There aren't any big blue progressive states when it comes to police. The police are protected no matter what they do, no matter who they do it to. And this case 
I hope will show that at least if you have everybody in the whole world watching, maybe you can get a conviction. But we know day in and day out, officers are using excessive force and are not being held accountable everywhere in this country, including in Los Angeles, California. So I'm hopeful that this one will end better than they usually do, but I'm not hopeful on the long-term outcome. Yes, thank you, Jackie Goldbergen. Dr. Gerald Horn, I mean, you heard Jackie's really rightfully emotional reaction there. And, and frankly, I have found in covering this since the trial has begun, it's really been difficult and, you know, and really emotional and difficult to get through the stuff without even weeping, <laughs> including on air. Um, so, and I, you know, we know that in talking with other uh, black people, other people of color, there's this collective PTSD that seems to be going on here. And Laura and Jackie's point about the need to quote unquote humanize uh, George Floyd, it just seems as though part of what's happening with this trial is having to show uh, to the nation and the world that yes, black people, we are human beings. And if that is proven that we are, who is to be held account when we are a victim of, of state violence, in this instance, a police officer? And, and Dr. Horn, just also, uh, finally, I know on a personal level, I am constantly aware of my skin and constantly aware that being in black skin um, puts you in danger in a number of, of uh, you know, occasions, uh, not only in terms of how law enforcement might react to you, but in every situation where you go to the doctor, you go to the hospital, you go into a, a store, you are very aware of who you are and therefore how people might react to you. Uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, your thoughts. Well, first of all, there's the general question. What you are pointing to is the fact that there has not been a full examination or excavation of the legacy of slavery and settler colonialism, whereby not only were black people treated as less than human, but also the fact that any person defined as white was deputized and allowed to punish any person defined as black, that is to say a runaway slave, for example, which was not just an expression of white supremacy, but also class oppression. And so far as the slaves were a class of individuals forced to work for free, but it also was an expression of capital preservation in so far as the enslaved Africans were the most valuable aspect of capital and the most valuable aspect of a unit of capital. And when you combine all of those and the fact that it has not been sufficiently unpacked, you get an idea of why you are saying that you are always aware of the color of your skin, which is the outward expression of what we're talking about. And then there are the specific questions. We know from the case of Eric Garner and Orlando Castillo and Minnesota Eric Garner, of course, in Staten Island, that just because you have a taste of a killing does not necessarily mean that the perpetrator will be convicted, particularly when the victim is black and carrying the burden of centuries of slavery and settler colonialism. And then there are even more specific questions. I mean, for example, you, you have this 
issue of certain jurors saying that they have no knowledge of this George Floyd case, even though it was getting round-the-clock coverage on cable news and in newspapers, which has led some legal observers to feel that certain jurors are on a mission that they were able to weasel their way onto the jury and are planning to tie up the trial in a mistrial, which conceivably could lead to a second trial, but then that could lead to a similar result. And then there are the confusing issues with regard to a trial like this. For example, you will have so-called experts brought in by the defense to testify that it was not Mr. Chauvin's pressure on Mr. Floyd's neck that led to his demise, but actually some pre-existing drug issues. And then you'll have other experts saying that that's not accurate. And oftentimes the testimony can be quite technical, quite confusing even to the most intelligent of jurors, and thereby opening the door to either an acquittal or a mistrial. Obviously the ultimate solution is mass pressure, not least in the international arena, to put pressure on the U.S. authorities to get their act together. Yeah, and and just a quick note, Dr. Horn, um, just, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, slavery and all that was a long time ago. You know, what are you going on about? You hear that a lot with the discussion around uh, reparations. And what is not taken into account, I mean, there is a reason why black people in particular, not only a lot of people are suffering PTSD from this, but why black people in particular are having this reaction to this kind of, of public lynching and the ongoing um, impact on our emotional, mental, physical health of what has happened to us in these Americas. I, I wonder if you would give a, a quick thought on that, Dr. Horn, because this is definitely connected to the issue of reparations as well. Well, reparations would not only involve some sort of monetary compensation, it seems to me it would involve a, a massive program of education in this country and in the Americas in general, and hopefully that would go a long way into helping to erode the kinds of stereotypes that lead us this morning to discuss the distinct possibility that Derek Chauvin will not be convicted. Yep. Uh, um. Harsh reality. Thank you, Dr. Horn. We are going to take our station break now, and when we return, uh, we'll get into a discussion about um, President Biden's infrastructure plan and how he is attempting in that infrastructure plan to address some of the issues of uh, racial inequality, but also uh, the damage to the climate. Our panelists will stay with us, so don't go away. We'll be right back. One day. When the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be ours, oh, one day, when the war is won, we will be sure, we will be the heavens, no man, no weapon. 
formed against. Yes, glory is destined. Everyday women and men become legends. Sins that go against our skin become blessings. The movement is a rhythm to us. Freedom is like religion to us. Justice is juxtaposition in us. Justice for all just ain't specific enough. One son died, the spirit is revisited. Freedom is like a religion to us. That's glory, John Legend, and common. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Look for us on Facebook. Look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. And we're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the city of Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, and internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners um, in the area of the Middle East. It is our weekly roundtable. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, and Dr. Gerald Horner. We're now going to turn our attention to more news on the domestic front, which has to do with um, President Biden's infrastructure. Uh, package for decades. Campaigners for civil rights and environmentalism have been pushing for increased government spending on social programs and green infrastructure, good, high-paying jobs, and civil transportation uh, projects that are harmonious with the environment have been among many rallying cries. Uh, Supporters of the Green New Deal have sought to address climate change along with achieving other social aims like job creation and reducing uh, economic inequality. And this week, the United States took its first step in moving towards a new system that incorporates the vision of the Green New Deal, but also addresses uh, some of the income inequality, uh, at least as far as President Biden um, wants to go right now. On Wednesday, March 31st, President Joe Biden unveiled the American Jobs Plan, a $2 trillion project designed to revitalize key infrastructure and job industries across the United States. Let's go to a clip now on uh, what is in the bill. This is a clip from The Washington Post. It's big, yes. It's bold, yes. And we can get it done. President Biden released a massive infrastructure plan on March 31st. Not a plan that tinkers around the edges. It's a once in a generation investment. The $2 trillion American Jobs Plan covers a lot of ground. It includes expected infrastructure items like updating highways, modernizing transit systems, replacing lead pipes, and upgrading public schools. This plan is important. Not only for what and how it builds, it's also important to where we build. It includes everyone, regardless of your race or your zip code. The sweeping proposal also calls for spending aimed at addressing the climate crisis and structural racial inequities. Uh, not just modernizing our roads, our railways, our bridges, but building an infrastructure of the future. The proposal would increase spending by about $2 trillion over eight years. The key function in being able to pay for this massive plan is reversing some of the Trump administration's 2017 tax cuts. We have to use the word tax cuts. This means raising the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28 percent and increasing the global minimum tax. Some Republicans have argued against this component of the Biden administration's plan. The divisions of the moment shouldn't stop us from doing the right thing for the future. I'm going to bring Republicans into the Oval Office 
listen to them, what they have to say, and be open to other ideas. Biden's proposal would pave the way for more electric vehicles, invest $180 billion in research and development to reduce emissions, create protections for climate-related natural disasters, and end federal tax breaks for fossil fuel companies. Still, some progressive Democrats wish it went further. Imagine knowing that you're handing your children and grandchildren a country that will lead the world in producing clean energy technology and will need to address one of the biggest threats of our time. 40% of these climate infrastructure investments benefit disadvantaged communities. In this same vein, the plan aims to improve public housing, retrofit more than 2 million homes, provide universal broadband, and expand access to care for seniors and people with disabilities. A second economic package that addresses health insurance coverage and child care subsidies, among other things, is expected to follow the American Jobs Plan in April. We just have to remember... This is the United States of America, and I've said it a thousand times. There's nothing beyond our capacity if we act together. So, uh, Laura Carlson, uh, a huge package here and uh, more to come uh, in April. Um, And Biden's package includes $400 billion for expanding Medicaid uh, beneficiaries access to in-home as well as community-based care for seniors and the disabled as part of of the larger uh, package. And the White House noted that caregivers have been traditionally unpaid or underpaid, highlighting that wages for home care workers are typically about $12 an hour. Um, So, you know, and and there's more uh, to it as well. Laura Carlson, your reaction to that and anything else that jumps out at you on this infrastructure plan? The care economy, the $400 billion for the care economy that you mentioned, I think, is extremely significant. Um, it readjusts a situation, it attempts to fix a situation that's existed pretty much forever in which, as you say, those workers were invisible and thus um, exploited in the homes in particular. And what Biden said recognizes that this has been the case. He says, for too long, caregivers who are disproportionately women and women of color and immigrants have been unpaid and undervalued. And this, along with the plan that was meant for the future of the American Families Plan, changes that with better wages, benefits, and opportunities for millions of people. This is, uh, is groundbreaking in many senses in terms of transforming the economy and particularly in terms of gender justice and justice for those sectors who work primarily in the care economy. So I think that's really important. The other, there's a lot of focus on the money, but in general, you can say that what's happening here is not a transformation to a new society. It will take much more than that, but it is a significant shift in power relations. And the other part that has to do with that is the fact that the PRO Act, the right to organize, is also in there that would repeal much of the 1947 Taft-Hartley Act that basically made it illegal for to have certain types of strikes, jurisdictional wildcat strikes, solidarity strikes, secondary boycotts, and uh, it ushered in the whole era of right-to-work laws, as well as certain Cold War hangers that have to, you know, that have to do with with that era in U.S. history. If that was the case, and that is is something that's passed into law. 
what we could have is better wages and working conditions, of course, but also this change in the shift of power within the capitalist society. We have a situation now where only 10% of workers are unionized, and the hope, of course, of organized labor as is that between the fact that much of the infrastructure goes into funding sectors where there is a slightly higher rate of unionization and the fact that there's a, there's a specific attempt to get rid of some of that anti-union uh, legislation, that there could be a major shot in the arm for, um, for organized labor, which is necessary. And we see that in the Amazon strike where the, the pandemic has made the inequalities and the differences between the, um, you know, the, the owner and somebody like Jeff Bezos who sees a 200% rise in his profits and the workers who are seeing themselves put in jeopardy through the pandemic and in these terrible working conditions at the same time as the wealth is distributed upward, you know, we could uh, see some major changes on that front with what's happening both with the legislation and with that historic vote that took place and that we'll see the results of next week. Right, thank you for that, Laura Carlson. And, and Jackie Goldberg, I mean, here you have this American Jobs Plan, you know, talking about um, repairing um, the Amtrak uh, backlog, yeah. extending service to more cities, modernizing the network of the Northeast uh, Corridor, um, expanding operations across large urban areas, intercity rail, um, $600 billion for transportation investments, uh, $115 billion to rebuild bridges and, and highways and, uh, you know, airports and, and much more. But yet the um, GOP, the Republicans are complaining because he wants to pay for it by uh, raising the tax on the rich. Now, Jackie Goldberg, a lot of people forget that Donald Trump had reduced the corporate tax rate from 35 percent to 21 percent by the end of 2017. And Joe Biden, I think he's talking about putting it back up a few percentage points to 28 percent. I mean, not taking it back to where it was. But your thoughts on all this? Well, Jackie I do Goldberg. think it's not quite a big enough uh, package because it's a once in a lifetime. But I do like some things in it. For example, the $100 billion in broadband means that neighborhoods that I represent in the school board in Los Angeles and in Los Angeles County, we have students who have great devices who can't stay online regularly because the uh, the corporate companies that provide Internet service don't do any infrastructure in poor neighborhoods. So they can't be online to, for online research and classes. It's just dreadful. Also, the whole business to connect, reconnect, $20 billion to reconnect neighborhoods. People don't realize that when Eisenhower's plan to build roads across the country was done, what they did is they combined it with so-called urban renewal. And what urban renewal meant was low-income neighborhoods of color were just wiped out in order to build the highways. New Orleans is the, probably one of the critical examples. That was an affluent black community that was wiped out. But mostly communities of color were wiped out for the infrastructure. To put $20 billion into reconnect neighborhoods that were divided by freeways and highways uh, is it, just critical. I think the most exciting part about this 
is is that support for the package amongst the people goes up to 57% when you tell them that it'll be paid for by taxing people who have more than $400,000 worth of income and our corporations. It actually jumps by 10% the support for the, uh, the, the package. I think that what's happening is the same thing that happened with the... Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, American uh, Rescue Plan. That is to say the Republicans in Congress are living an old, old, old uh, way of thinking. It is no longer relevant, and it isn't even relevant to their own constituents. Uh, the Republicans support the infrastructure plan. Fifty uh, percent had it re- said yes, they supported it. So I, I think what we're seeing here, oh, clean water, that's the other one that I like as well as the home health care one. The clean water one is really important because around the country there are pipes that are just degrading. You don't have to have Flint where they did it on purpose. It, it doesn't have to be on purpose. It doesn't have to be intentional. They're just degrading. And when they degrade, they let lead into the water, and we know lead is dangerous, particularly for children. So there are some good things here. I would love to see it go to 10 or $12 billion because I do think it's once in a lifetime, and I do think we need to be looking at even more things than are on the area. Particularly, we need to look at housing. The federal government has got to get into affordable housing. We are building housing all over the city of Los Angeles right now. I haven't seen a single unit go up that was affordable unless it was required by state law, and that's a very narrow area. So we need more housing that's affordable, and I think the only people that will build it is the federal government. Yes, and, and Dr. Gerald Horn, I mean, in, in the plan, there's also the cleanup of environmental uh, hazards. Um, that's that's part of it. And um, also the, you know, housing and care for the elderly, um, an article in the Washington Post says, isn't normally what one thinks of as infrastructure, but the other part of, of fixing bridges, et cetera. However, there are also uh, some concerns among some in organized labor. Uh, now, Mary Kay Henry, who's the president of the Service Employees International, she is saying it's the first jobs program that is focused primarily on work done by women of color. But on the other hand, and you have the Boilermakers Union and, and other unions that are complaining, saying, well, this is really going to uh, take jobs uh, as he's trying to go into a, a, a green economy. And of course, everybody's waiting to see the outcome of the vote at Amazon um, f- to, to unionize, which might tell us a lot about the future of organized labor in the U.S. Uh, Dr. Horn, your thoughts? Well, I think labor has some justifiable concerns. Take the subsidies to electric vehicles, for example, in which California is a leader. Preliminary studies suggest that it takes fewer workers to build these electric vehicles than building their counterparts, the internal combustion engine vehicles. And then there's the fact that Volkswagen of Germany has a head start with regard to building these vehicles that China, in a sense, has a head start. And in fact, Xiaomi, the Chinese uh, uh, telephone maker, is now moving into electric vehicles. And then if you look at Tesla, which is oftentimes touted as a U.S. giant and success story, uh, some of its major plants are in China. And there is a justifiable suspicion that China may be engaged in some sort of 
reverse engineering of the Tesla production processes, and then eventually we'll be driving Tesla out of the market, and the Chinese manufacturer will be taking its place using its processes. However, I think that on a wider scope, we need to see this Biden plan in some ways as a rebuke to Reaganism. Recall that Reaganism, Ronald Reagan, the former governor of California, being elected to the U.S. presidency from 1980, approximately, said the government was the problem. And that was a direct result of this Cold War conflict with the Soviet Union, where the Soviet Union was constructed as being the embodiment of big government. Of course, the United States felt compelled to take the opposing point of view. But the contradiction was that if there were public goods that did not generate profit, such as building non-toll bridges or non-toll highways, then highways and bridges would, be tend, would tend to deteriorate, which is what's happening in this country now. So in some ways, what's happening with the Biden plan is not only a rebuke of Reaganism, but it's the opening shot in this new Cold War with China, because in some ways, what the United States is doing is trying to respond to the state-directed Chinese economy by having, to a lesser extent, a state-directed U.S. economy. And interestingly enough, you've had Republicans like Marco Rubio of Florida at least rhetorically, rhetorically sign up to the idea that the state has to be much more involved in helping to guide this economy. But I don't think that we can jump and dance on the grave of Reaganism yet, because, as noted, the business community is hotly opposed to raising taxes. I'm speaking of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable. And if taxes are not raised, that leaves the United States in the anomalous position of going to the People's Bank of China to borrow in order to compete with China, and it seems to me that that's an unsustainable proposition. Right, and, and thank you for that, Dr. Horn. It actually takes us into the, the final uh, segment here. We just have about uh, six minutes or so uh, contrasting um, Biden's domestic policy with foreign policy. I mean, this coming Sunday, April 4th, marks 53 years since the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, uh, Tennessee. And prior to that, he was roundly criticized for coming out against the Vietnam War, but also roundly criticized for focusing on poverty and his, his call for the uh, Poor People's Campaign. And there are a lot of people now who are looking at and contrasting what Biden is doing on the domestic front, uh, where clearly he has, he does talk about poverty and has, uh, you know, has that on his agenda. But when you look at his uh, foreign policy, when you, you look at um, the agitation um, with with China and Russia, the selling of, of um, money to weapons uh, to, to the military dictatorship in Egypt, when you look at the declining to sanction the Saudi uh, crown prince, uh, Mohammed Ben Salam, for his role in ordering the killing of a Washington Post uh, columnist, the continuing to uphold sanctions against uh, Venezuela, Cuba, um, Nicaragua, etc., one is saying, well, 
how different is this from um, what Donald Trump was doing? And Laura Carlson, we'll start with you because reporters have now gone to the border, have gone inside facilities where children are being kept. And there was a lot of outcry of the conditions under, that they were kept under Trump. But what about the conditions now under uh, Joe Biden? Laura Carlson. Yeah, that's exactly where attention should be focused, um, although it's very important to to be uh, vigilant about the conditions. They were just allowed into the Donna, Texas facility where there are like 4,000 people in a space for about 250, and many of them are children. Uh, but what's happening there is indicative of, of the major problem with a Biden foreign policy. And that is that when he talks about root causes, he's still only talking about symptoms. And Central America is a classic example of that, and that's where most of these migrants are coming from. When Biden talks about the root causes, he's talking about the po violence and poverty in Central American countries, which is undeniably what's pushing people out. But what are the causes of the violence and the poverty in those nations? The causes of that are historically and presently imperialism, U.S. imperialism and interventionism, the uh, way that the United States has pressured these governments and even overthrown them when necessary in order to open up their natural resources to transnational corporations, yeah. the land grabs that displace people. And so that is really what we're looking at. Those pro-capitalist, pro-corporate policies we still have the uh, patriarchy system and the militarism embedded in them, and we're really not seeing a change on that level. Yeah, and uh, Jackie Goldberg, uh, President Biden has asked Vice President uh, Harris to lead efforts to coordinate with Mexico and Central American nations of Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, et cetera, on these issues. And um, the, it's only beginning to leak out the level of hunger, for example, happening in, in Guatemala among uh, children there. And people are quite shocked when they see people literally putting their babies over, you know, their young children over the fence uh, just so they could get into the United States. And one has to wonder, are these heartless parents or is this just a reflection of the suffering um, back in their home countries? Uh, but your thoughts as we're going into this weekend uh, marking the assassination of, of King and contrasting uh, Biden's domestic foreign policy, Jackie Goldberg. Well, of course, uh, nobody sends their children alone anywhere unless where they are is so dangerous that they can't stay where they are. And that's really what we're talking about. And we're largely responsible for foreign policy stuff that we did in the last, starting in the 60s with overthrowing our bends. We're, we're responsible for the conditions in those countries, not entirely, but almost entirely. Almost entirely, it's U.S. foreign policy that created those conditions. But I'm also worried about the fact that we're not back in the Iran nuclear deal. I'm really disturbed by the fact that, uh, that uh, Biden said he's ending offensive support, uh, uh, U.S. support for Saudi operations in Yemen, and yet they have not stopped the blockade, air, land, and sea of Yemen by Saudi Arabia which is causing 80% of the 30 million of people there to be on the verge of famine. 400,000 children under the age of five in Yemen are in danger of dying from acute malnutrition just this year. And, and we are not doing anything to help end that, that, that 
blockade which is causing that famine. So in spite of the fact that he got great kudos for saying we're not going to support Saudi's offensive operations, he didn't say he was going to end the intelligence that helps them decide who to shoot. He didn't say that he's going to not take care of the fact that the Saudis are a big, major problem for the starvation of Yemeni's people. Right, and thank you, Jackie Goldberg. Dr. Horn, you have the final word in the couple of minutes we have left. Well, obviously the policy towards China has not changed. There's continuity with the uh, Trump team. With regard to Cuba and Venezuela, policy supposedly is under review. I expect a change, at least towards Cuba. And I'm happy to hear this breaking news about resuming talks with Iran in Vienna within a few days. I would hope that Mr. Biden also carries through with regards to putting climate change at the center of his agenda, because that would allow for not only a move away from fossil fuels, but a move away from Saudi Arabia, perhaps warming relations uh, with uh, Iran, and perhaps also reducing, we can only hope, the influence of the Israeli lobby on U.S. foreign policy. Right. Thank you for that, Dr. Horn. And uh, thank all of you, our panelists, another fascinating uh, roundtable. You can tell that we are out of time. Today's show uh, produced by uh, me. That's Margaret Prescott. Thank our assistant producer, Romero Funes, our audio engineer today, uh, Kiana Williams. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230. Go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. And y'all, please stay safe. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.